Hi there, it's me, Timmy C. This is another episode of Death of a Thousand Cuts. It's lovely to have you back. I'm frankly amazed that you're still here listening to the show. Except, I suppose, the the thing that makes me uh, less surprised. And I'm, I do apologise for the uh, completely insincere uh, self-deprecation that, that I've just opened this episode with. I don't, I'm not surprised at all. I think I've worked really hard and the show's consistently good. If you are a writer and you enjoy writing and you enjoy reading and you enjoy all those sort of things or you have some passing interest in them, then really, why would you not be here? It's um, fantastic. There you go. There's a little insight into my psyche. That's a little, um, just, uh, it's like I did a little ultrasound of uh, my own incredible vanity and self-loathing. Look, let's get back on track, shall we? This week, um, I'm chatting with Chris McCrudden, who... I first uh, got to uh, know of him uh, via his really, really good posts on Twitter. And I know that sounds like I'm damning with faint praise, um, but I'm I'm not. I mean that sincerely. He does fantastic threads on Twitter about the publishing industry and crunching numbers and looking who's reading what and who's buying what. In what can be from in terms of book sales, like actually a quite opaque world, and where a lot of this information isn't is kept within the industry. Amazon keeps it, and he talks about this in some detail, about you know Amazon keeping their stats behind uh, behind a, a corporate firewall, and uh, Nielsen Book Scan uh, only sort of selling their stats uh, with to publishers. So most of us. Most of us shit munchers on the outside have only a sort of vague sense of what's selling or not. That might sound quite surprising to you. It was to me. Um, but Chris, uh, he, uh, he, he uh, pulls back the veil and reveals some of the things uh, behind that. Partly because of his background, partly because he just could be bothered to do a bit of digging and look at the data that is released um it's really really interesting but also i'm talking to him as an author um we talk about his uh comic sci-fi novel battled star suburbia and he talks about uh growing up in south shields and telling stories and being interested in comedy and geeky stuff and just the kind of like route he's taken uh to become someone who's an author and somebody who's interested in publishing and uh he is in equal terms uh, at equal terms um fascinating and articulate and uh careful not to overstate any claims he makes and just a really really great guy to listen to so i was so glad that he agreed to come on the podcast and if you don't know him already and i know many of you will You'll have read his posts. You'll be familiar with his work. You might have even interacted with him on Twitter. Um, you're going to really, really enjoy this episode. That's what struck me, kind of like listening back and editing it, was how much I enjoy listening to Chris talk. Um, I hope that doesn't come off as too obsequious. I, I mean it completely sincerely. I just think he's a really, really interesting and uh, charming fellow. Um, and I really enjoyed talking to him you know it's a really nice interview of two halves one is kind of like the first half is about him as an author and why he cares about books and then the second half we get into the nitty-gritty of stats and you know what's selling in the UK and who's buying what and what the current trends are and I think if you've got any interest 
in writing or being an author, you're going to find some really, really interesting insights in today's episode. Uh, just want to say thank you to everyone who's got in touch to say that they're pre-ordering copies of my novel, The Ice House. Um, I really, really appreciate it. it. It occurs to me now I'm recording this and of course I could pause and uh, go and find what I'm missing, which is uh, that I got some names that I want to read out of people who've got in touch to say that they've pre-ordered. Um, because I've just been incredibly disorganised this week, I don't have it in front of me. Uh, and uh, instead of re-editing this, I'm just going to, I'll just do it next week. Sorry. <laughs> That's not, it's not that I don't care. Um, uh, I just... Uh, yeah, I've just been a bit crap this week, haven't I? I, I I've been having a, a, a few more um, panic attacks this last week, and uh, I'm doing all right, and I'm bearing up fine. And actually, for all the uh, ills of social media, a lot of people have got in touch to say nice things to me. I want to say thank you to all of you who've written to me um, over the past couple of weeks. I keep hearing from people who are doing the Couch to 80K writing boot camp, which is still up there if you haven't tried it and you'd like to people who've just finished it or are in the middle of it, just telling me their stories of doing it, people sharing their disappointments as writers, they're getting back into it, they're inspiring stories. And I just want to say anyone, who, any of you who email me, I know I've not been great at responding to emails uh, recently. I used to sort of respond to everyone, but um, like I say, you know, let stress get a little bit um, above me in the last couple of weeks. And so I haven't been replying to messages quite as quickly um, and as completely as I'd like to. But I just want to say thank you. I read all your emails and they mean a huge amount to me. Now, of course, I, that would sound more sincere if I uh, got back to you. All, but I just I, I want you to know that I do read them. And I've been really moved by some of your stories and um, also just like really jazzed. Like it's easy when I sort of repeat all this enthusiasm over and over and say, oh, this is exciting. This is exciting. Oh, gosh, I'm so excited. It can sound like I'm not sincere or that I just have a very low bar for being (laughs) excited. Um, I don't think any of those things are true. I've been a dreadfully cynical person for a lot of my life and I'm, I'm sort of like in recovery on that. And I I just think I'm genuinely inspired by all of your stories. And I'm really, really glad you're having a great time with your writing and that some of the stuff I've done has helped you. On that note, if you would like weekly creative writing exercises, one every Friday, um, I'm still doing and planning to do for the foreseeable future my uh, weekly writing workout. I'll put a link in the show notes, along with, uh, by the way, a link that you can... um, by Chris's book Battlestar Suburbia um, through if you uh, like what he's got to say and that sounds like it's up your street um, but I'll put a link to signing up to this uh, this little list I've, I run where every Friday I drop you a little email with a new 10 minute writing exercise I think you'll really enjoy them I've had really nice feedback from people they're kind of like the boot camp but one a week Uh, just to give you a writing win every week. If you would like to, having listened to today's episode and you'd like to support what I do, um, pre-order my novel, The Ice House. It's out on the 2nd of May. Uh, Pre-orders continue to come in. Uh, We're a little way off the 1,500 pre-orders that we would need in order to get it into the... uh, the 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 Sunday Times bestseller list on its on its week of release, 
That is a uh, ambitious target, but you know a lot about the writing life and about what we do and about what I do has always been about embracing slightly wild dreams and just kind of going for them. And I, I'm still, I'm confident that if I put my finger out and make the effort, yeah, we can make it. I'm excited. Let me know. You, I'd love to hear your thoughts, by the way, about this. I've had a few people get in touch saying they've pre-ordered. I've had no one get in touch here to, to try and talk me down, um, which is cool, which is cool. I'm glad that you're not trying to protect me from my uh, my dream. Uh, I'm having a lovely time recording these podcasts, by the way, and um, I'm just so lucky to get to speak to some of these people, and I really enjoyed this chat with Chris. Um, so I don't actually really have anything else to say to you. I'm just uh, spinning this out because I'm enjoying talking to you. I hope you your writing's going well. I hope that you're finding ways to, you know, just enjoy it and make it about what serves you not what you think a writer ought to be like. There's loads, actually Chris has got loads of great advice on just like how to approach writing without being, we talk about perfectionism, we talk about trends, we talk about finding the time to write and he's got, he, he does say that writing tips bring him out in hives. He's got some quite interesting insights in why he thinks people, there's a, such a glut of people who want to be writers. It's all really useful. And I hope that you enjoy listening to it um, as much as I did having the conversation to begin with. Here's me chatting with Chris McCrudden. Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing and reading and books and stories and all the good stuff that makes us temporarily forget that we're only briefly sentient aggregations of meat destined to rot back into the soil from where we came and never remember anything about our wonderful, wonderful lives. But don't think about that now. Think about the fact that today... I am getting to chat and you, by extension, are getting to listen in on and eavesdrop on the conversation between me and a wonderful author and all-round fantastic human being, Chris McCrudden. How are you, Chris? I'm very good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm really, really well. Um, I've just, I, I just got, a, a, since it's um, January, I just got a Fitbit and I'm seeing for the first time how much sleep I'm actually getting and uh, at the moment it's averaging at five and a half hours a night so I feel like I've adjusted to my new actual sleep time and I've become increasingly haggard to kind of like compensate with my compensate with my... the knowledge that you get no sleep yeah I know I was like oh I should be tired right here we go then uh, bags pop out at the bottom of my eyes that is the most rock and roll thing is I don't sleep very much. The rest of my life is, is I suppose it is all monkish existence, isn't it? Monks don't sleep very much either. Um, but today isn't about uh, me and me uh, belly aching about having slightly too little sleep. It's about uh, you and your fantastic writing. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about your novel, Battlestar Suburbia, in a bit, which I've thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed and I'm going to try and like hold back from completely geeking out uh, at you in the first instance but just I wanted to I wanted to start I guess at the beginning you know as writers we're all slightly self-mythologizing in how we 
um, even using labeling ourselves writers. But I wondered if you could remember. Can you remember like the the first? Can you remember like the first one of the? Can you remember the what's the first story you can remember telling? Oh, um, I used to tell my grand stories when she was uh, walking me to school in the morning. Um, I don't really remember many of those stories or any of them at all, but I do remember that I, I would I would do that uh, do that to my grand because she liked to listen to them. Um, and when she listened to them, she would slow down a lot. And we got to school late yeah. um, quite a bit. And my um, my mam told me many years later that. Um, that she would uh, she would get phone calls and letters from the school saying he can't really be late. <laughs> why, <laughs> why is this happening? Um, so that impulse for me goes back a very 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 long way. Oh my gosh, it's like a thousand and one nights, right? You're like you're like telling stories to to delay. I am the Scheherazade of old ladies in South Shields. And there's probably quite a uh, there's actually there's quite a clear through line between that and uh, quite a lot of what goes on in uh, goes on my, in my books. <laughs> that's really that's a beautiful beautiful image. Can so from there, when how did how did it develop from there? What kind of stories were you enjoying uh, reading or listening to as you were growing up? Okay, so I had, um, when I was a kid, I had um, as wide-ranging a taste as there was material available for me, if you know what I mean, because this is a time before um, before the internet, uh, when there was not an abundance, there was not an abundance of stories available at, peop- um, at people's um at people's fingertips i you know I, I did all of i did the rounds of the usual stuff um i loved enid blyton um when i was uh, when i was small i used to like the um there were she did a series of books which don't really get talked about very much money with the, the mountain of adventure or the sea of adventure which were all based um upon they were based around a um a, a few kids who would go on these kind of amazing um international looking back on it quite colonialist adventures um in places um in places like africa there was a lot of them being tied up um which now feels quite problematic so i love those i love those adventure stories um i got very into the oz world um there there are about a hundred yes, loads aren't there yeah, uh, it's kind of like oh, the shoemaker of Oz, or you know, the the washerwoman who comes in three times a week of Oz. He, he was clearly running out of ideas towards the uh, uh, towards the back end of that series. But I sort of really, I really loved those books. They were kind of a very safe um, uh, place, as it were. Um, so, oh, what else? What else, David? I was obsessed with Greek mythology um, for a bit, um, to the point where um, when I, I last. Um, last year, when I went to Athens for the very first time since uh, since I was a child, and I went to the um, the Athens uh, the Athens Archaeological Museum, I actually got quite emotional looking at the bronze swords um, because they were the the same um, swords that made that that would have been used had it happened, which it probably did, but not in the way that we thought it would uh, thought it um, we think it happened. The the same swords that might have been used used during the during the Trojan War, what's your what's your favourite um, Greek myth? My favourite Greek myth. Oh, do I have to have a favourite? You don't have to. Have, no, you absolutely don't. I know that they're kind of like they kind of all all fit into a. a they're, they're not 
you can't really parse them completely, right? But the um oh um I because it's kind of the nearest because the way that I was introduced to a lot of them was a book which is Tales of the Greek Heroes, which was by a guy called Roger Lancelin Green, who I believe was mates with C.S. Lewis um, in Oxford. Oh, so was he one of the Inklings, kind of? Uh, with... I think he's one of the Inklings, who was kind of like a member of the cadet branch or something like that. <laughs> um, so the um, the um, there was one particular story in there which was um, which, which was with hindsight a bit like um, the um, Avengers of fin- Infinity War, which is where all of the Greek um, heroes got together in order to battle a huge monster whose name I cannot remember. Wow at the moment i will need to look that up um but that 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 stuck with me um quite a lot of the time with hindsight i've become um sorry in the intervening time i've become sort of more interested in sort of the uh, the kind of the, there, there are a number of through lines that you can trace in um you, you can trace in greek myth um one one of which being the general pettiness of hera um as a goddess hmm. um, and the uh, another one of them being the general douchebaggery of zeus yeah they were well suited they were as bad as each other (laughs) i i always feel like yeah it's it's funny how the god well it's not i mean of course it's not funny it's not it's not unu it's not surprising at all is one of the reasons they're so enduring but um how the gods are basically just this horror this this soap opera where the consequences of whatever happened it's like if you were what happened on east enders this week would like spill out into the rest of Great Britain and if two people had had an argument in it then Manchester might get burnt down or something yeah the this kind of idea that the the uh, that the gods have the same impulses and uh, the same impulses as human beings but are just more powerful um is it it's interesting to us um, because obviously we we're, we're coming out at the end of um, two thousand uh, two thousand years of um, uh, thinking of God, thinking, thinking of God, uh, God, and being very very different terms. But you know, it's it's it, this idea of the gods being sort of like humans plus superheroes, as it were, um, goes back a, goes back a very long way, but back down to the you know, the very earliest um, myths that we still sort of religious myths that we know. I know about coming out of places like uh, like ancient Sumeria. Why why do you think it's why do you think that um, the Greek because the Greek myths I, I know this is a huge this is a huge question, but why do you think they have taken root uh, in our like literary culture? Yeah, in a way that like you say there are so many different ones that they're com- competing with it's that you know they're, they're, they're why do you think that they particularly have um sort of gained dominance um to be blunt um i think the primary because of the primacy of latin um in the late in the late late middle ages onwards and secondly because of class um, so these were the these were these were the non-Christian myths 
the non-Christian stories that you learned when you had and when you had an education in inverted in inverted commas. So it was the you know it was the other culture that you learned that um, the other culture that you learned about that wasn't your own, um, and it was very closely intertwined with elite culture and by extension into literary extension into literary culture. So obviously there are very 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 rich and deep source of kind of myth and literature, but they've also been um, sort of inextricably um, inextricably bound up with our idea of what uh, what good looks at, so what good looks like from the point of view of this is what the right kind of people read and listen to. Yeah, there's there's they become well, I guess like all myths are, but they've become like a currency where you being able to drop a classical reference uh is certainly a very quick social marker especially within the uk yeah well especially within england mm. uh uh yes yeah 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 i and, and i should say like it does annoy <laughs> it doesn't it does annoy me uh on the on the behalf of the uh scottish and the welsh when um americans use the term british to mean the classical British person is someone like Jacob Rees-Mogg, and I'm thinking the classical in- English upper class person. Yeah. Um, I want so you start out telling these stories to your gran, and you fall in love with all these different imagine imagined worlds and quite you know often quite large not just individual stories but like expanded universes um can you talk about when you first started like like i don't want to use the term serious because writing serious stories but you know when you were actually putting pen to paper and writing stories down okay so um a couple of the a couple spring to mind so there was one when we got set a creative writing challenge at school when I was about 10 I think maybe nine or ten um and the because I grew up in South Shields which is a um a co- which is a town on the North Sea coast it's at the very mouth of the Tyne um south bank of the mouth so the quite a lot of um, the way that the town thinks about itself and our topography is defined by the sea, although people didn't really go to the beach much because it's really cold. Um, mm. And one of, the, one of the tasks we got set was to write a story set on and around a set of rocks at the mouth of the time, which, um, uh, which ships would get wrecked on called the Black Middens. Um, and I started writing a story about a boy and a seagull um who uh, a, a talking seagull um i think there was a merman or a mermaid involved as well um and that was just meant to be a short story but i just kept carrying it on um so i kind of i filled i filled exercise books full of that um uh, full of that stuff i think my dad probably still has it somewhere um in the attic so that was kind of the first kind of very long story um i remember writing and then I sort of kept on doing writing throughout the rest of my sort of my childhood into my teenage years. Um, as it went then, I did some write, I sort of continued to write at university, but then I was doing a drama degree. Um, so I was mainly writing for performance then, although that was also then I started doing it uh, sort of as part of, uh, as part of my, 
my degree, um, a creative writing class, with, which was taught by a very, 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 very good and underrated novelist called Susanna Dunn. Hi, Susanna. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and she was kind of pivotal for me in encouraging me to find my voice as a writer of prose. Um, I ended up doing an MA um, with her after I finished my um, uh, after I, after I finished my BA, and then and as a part um, as part of that, I. I wrote a novel, which, um, which if I really craned my neck, I can still see because I've got there's one copy of it left in the world, oh, um, wow. and I have it, um, have it, I have it on my shelf. Um, I haven't dared read more than about um, a few hundred words, a few hundred uh, words of it since for for about um, for about ten years, and I put that away, um, and then real life got in the way, um, and I was still sort of. Whenever I sort of couldn't help the impulse, I started to, um, I was still trying to write things down, but not really thinking seriously about it. And then in in and around 2011, I started a new job um, and uh, I live in Stoke Newington, which is in northeast London. And my new job is in Kensington and getting from Stoke Newington to, Newington to Kensington is an arse. Um, and I couldn't get the central line in the mornings because it just made me feel sad. Um, so what I would do is I would get the uh, I would get the train to Liverpool Street Station and then get the circle line. And the circle line from Liverpool Street to High Street Kensington is around about 40 minutes on a good day, um, which is a long time to be sitting on a tube. And it was there um, that I started writing Battles of Suburbia. Wow. That's <laughs> I feel so I feel so called out because like I I go from like Norwich to London and that's like a two hour train journey. And I often I I often just put past that just gawping out the wind. I think that you can't do anything on a train. You can't you could you can't you can't be expected to to do anything on a train. I'll I'll stare out the window until my eyes start to water. Um that's so you so you found a space in your life where you were able to you were start to start squeezing in right can I just this is like I, I told you I was going to ask some dumb questions but were you then were you writing pen and paper or like I'm just thinking about like the logistics of it yeah wow I was writing on an iPad I had an, I had a bluetooth keyboard for an iPad and I wrote it on that wow well, that's really that's that's amazing. I mean, I, sorry, I, I don't mean I sound like I'm being sarcastic, but I'm genuinely, I, I'm, I'm just genuinely thinking how so many writers talk about, or when we think about writers, it's about you know waiting till the muse hits you, or finding your you know going out to your writing shed or your special office and lighting the incense and getting ready to create. Um, and it, I think you know to people listening who maybe haven't tried it what you're describing a kind of like morning tube ride um sounds antithetical to to writing what was it what was it like doing writing uh like that because you have you didn't sort of wait for ideal circumstances to come along you just saw an opportunity and sort of started taking it well i didn't do it every morning sometimes Times that oh, I just can't last. Um, so it wasn't it wasn't quite as religious as that. I do think that we talk about writers and writing in an unhelpfully religious way, 
it's like come on you're writing a ya adventure you're not a monk hmm. um so oh it yeah it was it was i had all of that time available um to me um and it just so happened that um that i thought oh, well maybe i can maybe i can write this um and i started to do it and and i kept um, and i kept on doing it it was it was i there wasn't and also bearing in mind that when I was doing it, I didn't know whether I would ever finish it. I didn't know whether it was any good. I didn't know that anybody would ever want to read it, let alone um, publishing it. So kind of like, I think when you're when you're starting out, it's when the way I describe it is, is if you're writing a book, it's not a thing until it's a thing. Um, and I found it incredibly difficult to think of myself as writing a book. I was just writing this thing and it might end up being a book. Um, I was so horribly kind of superstitious and sort of ashamed of it. But I think before I got my um, publishing contract in, I think about maybe two dozen people knew that the book existed. Wow. I, I really understand. I un- but you also make it sound like because you weren't, because how could you start? I I because I, I get lots of emails from people now who listen to the show and then say this is the problem I'm having with writing. Da da da. Like it's so common that people get in their way because they go, I'm gonna okay project status. I'm gonna sit down and write a book, and then they freeze up or they lock up or they delay. And particularly authors doing their second or third novels. You know, I had Joe Dunthorne on last year and he talked about making himself miserable because he it took him 6 years to write uh to 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 write the the adulterants because he'd sat down and gone right I'm going to take it seriously this time and I am going to write my best novel and this is a project that I'm now starting. And he said it made him miserable. So as as much as you're sort of saying it's sort of superstitious, it also sounds like it was like a reasonable policy because it stopped it being this kind of like arduous task where the kind of like eyes of fate were watching you as you chose every word. Yeah. Yeah. I think, and another thing that it it took me a very long while to let go of. um, And for this, I blame, um, blame doing a partly English literature degree is this, sort of compulsion to think of when you sit down and you and you start writing something that it has to be that every sentence you have to write has to be Jean Reese. Um I don't know who Jean Reese is. Uh, but Jean Reese was the the writer who wrote Green Sargasso uh, so Wide Sargasso. Oh, right, okay. Yeah. So she was um she's and she's known for being one of the great pro stylists of the 20th century she never produced much because she had a very tortured relationship with her own writing um which she was uh, just um, to emphasize you know the the because it's in the news at the moment her um the editor um who worked on wide sargassus he was diana Atil, diana diana Atil, oh, um, yeah. who died this week um but the one thing that that kind of that stopped Jean Reese from producing was the fact that she was an alcoholic. But let's put that out, uh, that um, that out of the room. For them. She was kind of because she was such a great prose writer. She found it incredibly difficult to write. 
that doesn't it, it doesn't sound like she was having much fun while writing you know no it was taught that for for the uh, diana uh, diana attill wrote a really 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 good book about her life as an editor called stet um and there she there's a long section there which she talks about the process by which white sargasso sea came into being and she the way that she describes the way that jean reese wrote is like oh my god this just sounds like this woman was torturing herself and yet she couldn't not do it I definitely have encountered several writers, including, let me say, myself, who hear hear about, you know, people, you know, really tripping themselves up and getting kind of like, I guess the equivalent of kind of like cystitis of the pen and not being able to do anything but but squeeze a few burning drops out every day and it hurts. But... um, and yet can't let themselves go because they they also go yeah but she did white write wide sargasso sea right so you know maybe it's worth kind of hating yourself because if you if you didn't you, that's the price of being good do you think that's something you it's a question of what's going to make you unhappier writing or not writing mm. um i don't know i think there are there are a lot of there are a lot of people who have that sort of compulsive relationship um compulsive do i want to say compulsive as like almost self-abusive relationship with um with with, with writing and the, they're not happy when they're doing it but they're not but they're not happy when they're not doing it mm. as well i wouldn't put myself in that category i mean it's not it's not fun all the time um and there are points where you go oh jesus christ how am i ever going to resolve this plot point or oh, i'm so bored of this scene um but I, I i don't have that level of neurosis um around writing i think that's really i think that's really good for people to hear and i think that's i i kind of always press writers a little bit on those things just because it's and it's been a real revelation to me to see that there's no correlation between self-loathing and the quality of writing that a writer produces. That 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 this that horrible romantic notion that in order to create you have to be unhappy or tortured or by inference be making other people unhappy and torturing them. I think that's a terribly, terribly, terribly um problematic gift that's been handed down to us from 19th century literature which i would like us to let go of very much can you talk about um how i uh, this is going to be like a kind of where you where do you get your ideas question but specifically with battlestar suburbia where's the sort of like first kind of like piece of grit that's that the story started forming around well it um it originally started around about more than 10 years ago now um, I I used to do cabaret, um, and I used to do cabaret with my friend Jonathan, and um, we sort of invented um, silly characters, and then we'd do them in um, do them in terrible cabarets around uh, around Manchester in the north of England, where um, where I lived at the time, and then we also started writing. Um, we both really loved radio comedy. And we started um, trying to write radio comedy and we got very, very far down the line with the BBC um, for a radio comedy, which was based on a militant wing of the um, of the Women's Institute, which we called it called Combat Knit One Pearl Six. (laughs) Um, And 
but that then that that fell at the last hurdle when our producer got made redundant, got made redundant, and then we thought, right, okay, if we've reached the end of the line with this idea, we need another idea. What should we do? And then we had this idea that, ooh, what if the world was taken over by robots, um, and but it was set in the north. So, you know, because even there must be a north, even in space. Um, so we started playing around with this situation and these ideas as a um, as a radio comedy. We wrote a first episode of it in an outline for the first series, and then it didn't really go anywhere from there. And then it lived in a beginning, lived in a Google Drive um, for about three years. And then in around about 2011, I read it again. I thought, well, there's something in this but I think it could probably be a book. So um, I took some of the, I took some of the characters, I took a couple of the situations, but not many, and then started reworking them. Well, I did get John's permission, by the way. Um, and um, and I started started working them up, um, working them up into battle, battle star suburbia. Another thing to bear in mind is that when I was starting to think um, about it, this was, around about the time of um occupy um occupy the city mm. and occupy wall street i was the very beginning it was around about the very beginnings of austerity um the financial crisis so i was very conscious of the fact that we were living in an incredibly divided world um in which there are people who have a lot and there are people who have not very much at all um and I wanted to play with that idea, um, so I decided that in this world that I was creating, I was going to put um, what I wanted to talk about, um, a relationship between machines and humans in a, you know, in what we might, we might call from a, um, a traditional kind of dystopia, but look at it from the point of view more of social class um, and occupation um, than, um, than a, I think a lot of other works uh, might might look at these. I think a lot of dystopian fiction deals with kind of very blunt power structures. They say, "Oh, these are the this is these are the oppressive people, um, and these are the and and the, and these are the rebels." Um, and I I didn't kind of want to take that approach. I wanted to sort of talk about you know what does labour look like in a in a world where um and in in an in a in an unequal world you know sort of a, how do how does a um how does a, a race sort of a race of oppressive machines how do they organize themselves socially do they had do they have their own their own internal class structure so i wanted to tell all of that and i also want because i wanted it to be a funny book i also wanted to tell jokes hmm i really i i because like uh, yeah like you say like a lot of the dystopias that have been uh popular uh in the last sort of 10 and 15 years and beyond um like you said the, the power structure is quite blunt the people uh being oppressors not are often they know that they're being they're very consciously doing it they like you know they they've got grunts with like g you know gas masks on uh and uh it's 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 very much it's very much it's very much uh, set up like that. Whereas you are talking about a world where, you know, there's some uh, beings that are, you know, the the class structure is so is so complete that they are just they just have no real 
interest or cognizance in the people that they're, uh, uh, that they're oppressing rather than rather than actively going out to crush them they just just are have the luxury of not noticing them yes privilege yeah. um yeah, the, the, I'm reminded of that um, that brilliant mo- uh, Mitchell and Webb sketch with the Nazis, yeah. where one turns to the other, goes, "Wait, are we the bad bad guys?" Yeah. Do you know that one? Yeah, I do. Where they got they've got skulls. They notice that they got skulls on their hats, and they're like, "Wait a minute, is this this is what a baddie would have?" Yeah. Because I the I when I'm back when again when I was at university and I. I uh, I, in one of the, the drama courses that I was doing, um, one of my um, lecturers, um, a magnificent former opera singer called Susan, um, uh, said to me, Chris, you have to remember that people don't go through, go through their lives thinking they're villains, hmm. um, which is something I've carried with me um, ever since. And although um, kind of, I think the way that you are really interested way to to make Ellen is to think of somebody who is doing bad things but doesn't necessarily think that they're a bad person Mm. yeah it's I mean because I mean of course there can be villains that are just completely self uh, they kind of own their villainy and um, those are often quite satisfying to see knocked down but they don't really challenge us as readers, I find they don't have the quite the crunchiness and the slight discomfort of someone who has their own has their own logic why they have to do this. Yeah. Yeah. Before we go any further, can I was wondering if it would be all right just to make sure everyone listening is on board. Could you give a little pricey about what Battlestar Suburbia is about? Because I've kind of I've kind of leapt into theme. Um, without us kind of like just get, getting a kind of giving people an idea of uh, um, who who's this story about? Sure. Okay, I'd like you to imagine a world that's 10,000 years in the future. We're still on the planet Earth, Earth um, but now the world has been taken over by machines, except the machines that are now walking around and intelligent and ruling the world are actually descendants of the consumer appliances and technology that we know today. So it's a world that's filled with hyper intelligent smartphones and bread makers and uh, bread makers and ice cream makers. Uh, um, the machines have decided that uh, humans cannot be trusted with the Earth, so they've exiled them all to um, to orbiting council planets, or, or as I call them, dull stars. And there humanity lives, and every morning they all get on buses, um, and they come down to the Earth to do cleaning and domestic service for the machines. Because now that they're kind of at the top of the political tree, as it were, um, machines don't save labour anymore, they create it. Um, mm. And so into this world... Um, there we uh, into this world with kind of it's all with all of its sort of um, uh, social uh, social inequalities and whatever then that can, that, that's kind of one of the main, the main themes of the book um, there happens a rebellion um, and the book is around uh, the book is about the conditions that lead to and what happens after the first human rebellion against the machines I it's like with I think it's worth emphasising uh, because you mentioned this, and I just want to underline this to people. Like, uh, there's. I was thinking about how I would describe this book to people, and the thing is, I, I if I 
go, oh, it's really, really funny. I, I, I worry that people are going to not get that it's also, it's also in its, you know, in its DNA, it is to its bones political. But on the other hand, if I go to people, oh, it's like a piece of political satire, I might miss out the fact that there's, well, just great, like that there's, a, <laughs> that there's an, an app that they're playing called Humanity Crush. Like there's, there's like funny, there's fun, there's things like that are really funny, but they're also, it's, it, I kind of like, I end up going, well, you've got to just actually sort of sit down and start like reading it to get the voice, to get the tone. Um, but you, I think you, one thing I wanted to ask you about was actually about satire and the purposes of satire and why, why use humour um, when you're trying to make a, political point what does it allow you to do what pitfalls are there uh what's you know how did how did you deal with like mixing jokes and often things that are you know gags for their own sake with politics that well, i think satire is a terrible stain on the english character um it's the way that we uh, the way that we as a nation have chosen to engage with politics and it stops us from taking politics seriously because all we do is laugh about it. Um, and I have a, I have a very conflicted relationship with satire. Love satire, um, but I'm also conscious of the fact that okay, we're making jokes about things that we should change. Um, so I don't I don't have a good answer to that question. I wanted to explore I wanted to explore these ideas in my writing, but the only way that I could find um, for me to write that book and to enjoy that book enough to want to finish it was to make it funny. And I don't know whether that's an observation or I don't know whether that's a, uh, um, a signal of there being something flawed in my own character or my national character, but that's the way it was. That's really fascinating. I guess you're kind of, so to you, the danger with satire um, is that it becomes kind of, it becomes officially sanctioned or co-opted that it's like the court jester uh it's 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 a it's a substitute for rebellion that kind of lances that boil rather than letting it come to a head where people take action it provide i think it provides a pseudo catharsis so catharsis um for the listeners um is a um is a concept from ancient greek the the feeling that one was meant to derive from um, uh, watching Greek tragedy is to experience horror and pain um, and through the experience of that through the experience of that feeling you learn something whereas I think laughter in particularly in satire provides you with a pseudo catharsis it offers you an easy way out um, of thinking too deeply about a situation so I think that that's really interesting and I agree with you up to a point. I think like we could like in the way that we laugh when we're feeling nervous, it's a way that's like a load of jokes are about building up tension and then you pop the bubble and people laugh and it's a release. So I think that's true. I think in this book, my experience of reading it is that there are lots of points where you do pop that bubble. There's also ones where... You don't, <laughs> you don't close it off, and things are left behind. And actually, um, 
again, the, the, my difficulty explaining this to people is if I say, well, I actually am reading this book, there was a lot of times when I just felt profoundly uncomfortable, then that sounds like, oh, it's not funny then. Yeah, it is. But there's just like really, I think like, for example, when uh, when Darren is early on, when Darren is dressed up as nurse, uh, as Sister Dix. Yeah. Um, uh, and Nurse Dix and suddenly is getting people looking um it says um darren darren remembered that men expected temporary ownership of nurse dix's body as a reward for their attention um there's things like that where of course like darren plays it up a little bit but at the same time there's not like a big there's not like a big payoff gag that lets us go but it was all all right because because all those people doing that get their comeuppance and that thing is resolved no it kind of it's kind of left there's like and i think for every gag that you pop there's a bunch of other ones that you just let build and build um so i'm i'm not sure i i think it's i think precise it's i think the fact that you are nervous about those things or that you're aware of them um is one of the reasons why it doesn't it doesn't happen in this um i i I think it's really I think it's really interesting that actually the structure of a joke sometimes you can build up towards what something it, something's going to be a joke and then just leave that discomfort that unresolved chord hanging. Yeah. I that's that's a really interesting thought. I hadn't I, I hadn't thought about it that way actually. Um well I'm particularly interested in it because we just had on the show um this uh, neuroscientist called Paul J. Zach, and he talked about them showing videos to people or telling stories to people where it was talking about a father bonding with his terminally ill two-year-old son, and they showed how it creates a release of, uh, of uh, cortisol, the stress hormone, which makes you pay attention, and then we release oxytocin as we bond with the person in the story. And then afterwards... People were found, if they were asked to donate to ch charity, a cause unrelated to the topic of the video, um, they were 80% more likely to donate to charity unrelated, as that feeling of oxytocin creates feelings of community and bonding and makes us be nicer to people. So for me, what satire can do, and what like a story like yours can do, um, that makes it more than just... Of course, you can't you release one book and... Um, it just creates revolution, but I think people read it and then those kind of chemicals that are produced in the brain, the way we relate to characters, uh, neurophysiologically, we're unable to distinguish between that and an actual experience we've been through. And with tragedy and with satire and with any joke that isn't finished, that discomfort persists beyond the book and then we seek to resolve it in real life. Yeah, I don't, that, that, that's interesting I think I mean I'm just I, I'm doing the douchebag thing and just giving you a comment and going there's my comment uh, <laughs> yeah from from my from from my point of view all I wanted to do was write a book that people might want to read um and I, I originally set out because I I don't really see an awful lot of comic science fiction being published um I so I quite like to read I quite like to read um, comic science fiction. I grew up on things like um, things like Hitch, uh, like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Um, so I wrote comic science fiction. Then I sent it out for submission, and I got told by a roundabout by a lot of different science fiction agents, "Oh, we don't really know what to do with comic science fiction." And then I put the book in a drawer for two and a half years, um, and it just so happened that um, my publisher, um, Farago um, Abby, who's my editor, had joined. 
um, Farago from another publisher. She'd worked in nonfiction before. Um, she's a friend of mine, and she was one of the you know one of the two dozen people um, who knew oh, about wow. the book's existence. And she sent me an email one day saying, "Chris, are you doing anything with Battlestar?" I said, "Nope." Uh, well, would you like us to would you like to send us the manuscript with some indications of how you would um, turn it into a series? Because we're acquiring series at the moment. Um, and that which I did uh, didn't hear for anything for months but that's fine publishing is a slow moving business um, and then um, I think it was it might have been as it's six or seven months later I got I got the offer in so I I actually didn't um, I didn't expect um, Battlestar ever to really see the light of day um, after that just because I'd been told by everyone involved um, in the business that um, comic science fiction as a genre is is more or less dead so it's it's been it's been a nice experience to get the book out there to get you know some in to get some interest in it the people who've you know who've read it who've read it and um, who tell me that they've enjoyed it they say they've enjoyed they enjoyed it that's nice but I'm kind of like I'm just happy that it got published to be honest yeah my goodness it's that sounds like a really really lovely experience of just having no expectations whatsoever and then having them exceeded that's <laughs> how lovely um can you i was i was can you talk a little bit about did you just write it the again i'm i'm i i i some of these questions are sort of like a little bit um basic but i'm just interested to know are you someone who writes serially so you begin at the beginning go to the end did you write various sort of scenes or set pieces and then look at ways of bridging them or did you did you plan before you went in? I started at the beginning and I went through to the end. Right. I think there was in the first draft there were a couple of uh, there might have been a couple of occasions where I didn't quite know how to finish a scene or a chapter, so I just kind of left it and then moved on. Because um, the way that I'd worked beforehand, um, I my main stumbling block as a writer had been I'd studied it um, at university so my inclination was to try and get everything ever good to get trying to get every chapter up to Gene Reese standards and that would um, and that impeded my ability actually just to press on and finish the damn thing um, so with this one what I resolved I would do is I'd start at the very beginning I'd go through to the very end. If it was a load of vomit um, when I um, went back and went back and read it again, so be it. But um, but by God, I would finish it. That I think that's I think that's so. I definitely have heard some authors who like write a little bit, go back the next morning, edit, 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 and they can't, they feel like they can't move on, and they just slowly incre- they sort of build it up um, like a stalagmite. Um, but it's. It's certainly nice to get the shape of something down on the page and to just know how it finishes for you when you wrote it. Because then when you come back to edit the beginning, you know where it's going. Yeah. Um, I, I, I've heard uh, often people refer to it as being the vomit draft. <laughs> mm. but, you know, again, it depends on how you work. It depends on what kind of um, what kind of person you are. And there's a whole industry of writing tips out there. We both know this. Um, And fundamentally, I believe that the reason there is a huge industry for writing tips is there is possibly a bigger market um, for telling people how they should write a book than there is 
readers. <laughs> yeah, I think it's... I mean, I have craved writing tips from uh, other people because I... You, and I'm sure you've had this experience of like sometimes sit in front of a page and go, I just don't know what the fuck I'm doing. I'm like, I don't know how to do this. How? What's a book again? What's a sentence? That's just the experience of being an adult, though. You have just described adulthood. I don't know what I'm doing. No one does. But I still believe that other. I still believe that other people do. You know, I think I'm so con. I I I look around and other people are walking around in special. They're wearing a tabard that seems that you know. I'm like, well, that that that's that's a job. Look, you wearing a special thing for the job. Wow, I don't have a special thing for my job. I'm just in my pajamas. But writing writing tips bring me out in hives. They remind me of those, um, you know, those art those articles. They go viral every couple of weeks of uh, people's morning routines. It's like, oh, I want you to meet Diggory. Diggory is the CEO of startup juice provider. And then he talks about getting up at five o'clock in the morning, doing 20 minutes of stretches, having a green smoothie, <laughs> going to the gym, going coming back, eating something with kale in it, maybe then spending 14 hours, spending 14 hours at work. And it's this kind of, I don't know, it's this kind of content that's, it's only it, it says that its purpose is to help us kind of optimize our life or do things better. And I just think that it's content that's designed to make people feel bad about themselves. I think writing as a yeah, as a 30 and that debate, which I'm a person. Well, I, I mean, like I couldn't do <laughs> my 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 two year old daughter wakes me up in the morning if I if I was rising enough with enough time to do meditation and drink some mushroom tea i'd be i'd make myself going to sleep like i, I like what what world are people in where they can rise like two hours before they had to have to do anything and spend it farting about and journaling not that i sort of like uh if any if people fart, uh, uh early rises and they naturally enjoy doing that good for you but like absolutely i think you're right that writing as writing tips as actual selling people the lifestyle of the writer um are are very popular currency and that's why being an author frequently tops or comes in the top five like most what's your dream job questionnaires you know you know why i think that is i think because the way that work is nowadays is involves being constantly monitored um you have to account for you know if you're if you're lucky enough to have a professional job then um most of the time you're required to account um for your time down to the last 15 minutes which i am in my my day job is that i'm I'm a brand planner if you or if you have you know a retail or a customer retail or a customer service job you're again you're scrutinized really closely you're told how many toilet breaks you can um take you're told how many calls you have to calls you have to take an hour and that makes i think the prospect of being an author incredibly attractive to people who don't necessarily know what it involves because it involves being left alone oh chris i feel i've just had you've just absolutely blown my mind i feel i feel like 
I feel like I'm in a therapy session. I feel like this would be the point where I'd start. You'd like pull a tissue out of the uh, from and then say, I think we've had a breakthrough here, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's so right. So when I started writing, it was. Yeah. I was going to say, like, when I started writing, it was just after walking out of a job at Norwich Union where I had two bars, one on either side of the screen. I was working in, they said they took me into the to the uh, place I'd be working. They said, you'll be working in deaths. And then, <laughs> and then there was a bar and it's like, they said, okay, this bar is how much your productivity. And then there was a bar constantly ticking up the right hand side of the screen. And it said, that's your expected level. You've got to that left bar has to catch up with that right bar. And I started being so stressed that I had like one of those one a day tear off calendars at home of Chinese propaganda posters. And I fell two days behind it with it and felt like incredibly guilty I was like I can't keep up I can't keep up and I ended up like like having to leave with sort of like depression and stress and anxiety and I was so convinced that becoming an author was like the final refuge from the world of bar of bars and productivities and middle managers and you're you're so right I think that was part of the and then of course what it ends up being for me at least is 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 having emails ping into my inbox and kind of like guiltily ducking them going oh god they they mustn't know that i've spent the entire morning walking around my house i've eaten some toast and i watched a youtube documentary <laughs> yeah but that but, right. I, but that i think that in a world where everybody is expected to be accountable to other people for what they do with their time or what they do with every minute of their day. Hence why these damn, I get up at four o'clock in the morning and then I have a kale smoothie. Um, things are so popular. I it, I think it's an incredibly tempting prospect to think of, well, what, what if I can do something that involves just being left the fuck alone? Um, and that's, I, that's why I think that you know, people think in kind of the top, um, top professions is author, often librarian. I think these people have never engaged with the library service. Um, but it's, I think it's, do they want to write books or do they just want to be left alone for a bit? It's because, I think it's because uh, we got rid of the last man, the last staffed lighthouse in Great Britain, right? So now all lighthouses are all automatic. There's nothing left but being an author if you want to be left alone. You don't want you don't, anchorites. You don't have enough anchorites everywhere um, now. Guess, more people should be want to be walled up inside a small cell and praying. <laughs> um, I was gonna. I wanted to. I wanted to. Um, by the way, um, everyone listening, I'm gonna put a link to Chris's book, uh, Bath Star, Star Suburbia, in the show notes and on my website, tinkleapart.co.uk, which you can go. Of course, if you can go to a bricks and mortar store and order it in that'd be fantastic but otherwise um don't care how you buy the book if you want to buy it just buy it um you heard it from chris himself um but i will put a link where you can go and uh grab yourself a copy um i was going to ask you chris let's get on to the publishing industry then because you post some i've been absolutely the first sort of found out about you uh through your posts on twitter but where you do some really fascinating threads about the state of the industry who's getting published who's getting bought who's getting read um with lots of graphs and great graphics and just fascinating 
kind of number crunching with your um, trademark analysis. And um, uh, uh, most recently you did one on the bestseller lists. And now this is particularly interested, interesting for me because, I mean, I will never get on them, but um, I'm certainly um, looking for ways to, to try. And of course, uh, we're all interested in what people are reading as well. Can you talk a little bit about your sort of what you what you found when you had a had a had a look at them? Sure. Yeah. I mean, full declaration. I used to work in publishing. Um, I worked used to work in publishing PR and comms um, for nearly five years, which has given me an insight into into the way that the business operates. It means that I know possibly a little bit too much about how the business operates for me to be feel feel entirely safe and secure being an author. So, <laughs> oh gosh, of my author life, there are certain things I don't ask questions about and I don't look at. So um, I fully reserve the right to a level of hypocrisy about approaching topics like my own book sales. Um, most recently, The Guardian has some sort of agreement with Nielsen. Nielsen for the Uninitiated is a data firm um, that, and one of the things they have is, is book scan, and that's a book chart. So they um, they have feeds coming in from bookshops, um, usually uh, traditional br- bricks and mortar bookshops of w- what books are selling and where, um, and that information is packaged and sold back to publishers. And that's one of the reasons why there is such a poor level of um, public data about book sales, um, basically because one firm has most of the one firm has most of the data from bookshops, and it's it makes its money by selling that data to, data to publishers. Obviously, they have their own sales figures, but they can't. Com- but they need that data in order to be able to benchmark themselves against other books, against uh, against uh, against other publishers. So you've got Nielsen at one end, then you've got Amazon at the other end, and Amazon keeps all of its data to itself and will never let any data outside the firewall. So from the the from 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 an outside outsider's point of view um books and data is a really opaque world um but occasionally you get um a really tantalizing glimpse into it and um every january what the guardian gets from nielsen is a list of the top 100 um best-selling books they did it last year they did it this year they might have done it the year before i can't remember um and they they publish that data they do a little bit of analysis the analysis isn't isn't very good um so this year i decided to have a look at this data and do a bit of analysis of it um so i had to do a bit of um bit of uh, sort of a, a bit of building the data out so the way whether it's published on the guardian's website they give you information like uh, um how many copies it sold who's the author who's the what's the title of the book but they don't they hadn't included data like who was the publisher um and what genre and what what genre might mean what shelves in the book um, shelves in the the bookstore um it might be on which i i added that back in um and basically did um an an analysis of um of who's been who's been um selling what selling most of what in um in the uk in in uk in 2018 I mean, one thing, one thing, another thing to emphasise is when we say bestsellers, um, the top 100 books in the UK um, only sold 16 million copies. That I mean, that sounds a that sounds like a 
a lot to my uninitiated ears. I can't tell if you're being sarcastic or is that not a lot? There are 70 million people in the UK. But so I... So the, uh, one thing I need, uh, one thing I sort of, when I'm, I'm talking to people who don't know an awful lot about the entertainment industry, yeah. the book industry is really quite small. And you don't need to sell an awful lot of something in the book industry, particularly in the UK, for it to be a big deal. And when you operate from inside that industry, if you're an author, if you're a publisher, if you're um, if you're somehow affiliated to that industry, it feels like a really, really, really big deal. But for the majority of um, consumers in the UK, reading and books are a very, very, very small part of their day to day existence. It's like going up and doing the Edinburgh Fringe. You go up there and you, th- you think that the eyes of the entire Western Hemisphere are, lo- uh, are on your review in the Scotsman coming out on Friday. Oh, it's not in there. Well, what will people say? They'll think, and, and like, and then you, and then as soon as you're not up there for August, you go, oh yeah, I guess that's on now, isn't it? <laughs> but it's kind of like this incredible, the cultural currency of it from the inside feels intense. From the outside, not so much. Um, so, I mean, if I was to do a very, very quick fag packet, calculation let me get my calculator up so um 16 divided by 70 uh, times 100 okay so think about those 16 16 million books if each one of those books was bought by a different person which we know is not the case that those top 100 books will reach um 22 percent of the total british public Yeah, I mean, I guess you got to take out you, and then you're sort of. Um, but does it does that hundred list include children's as well? It's genre agnostic, right? It does okay. So that's everyone down. So that does literally, apart from sort of under ones, that is the whole population. I mean, so what were amongst those books? What what? I mean, I know because I know you know what what amongst those books. What were people? What was what was popular? David Walliams. Um, David Walliams, you might not know, is the most popular author in the UK at the moment. His sales dwarf anything else that's put out into the UK market. Hang on, I knew I, I knew that he was the most popular children's author, but sorry, did you just in case I misheard that the most popular author? The most popular author. He sells the most books. Wow, I did not realise that he gets. Um, not very much coverage for how many books he sells because we don't we don't take as a an our um, our literary establishment does not take children's literature seriously. Um, certainly not at the kind of the level of commercial force um, that it has in the UK at the moment. So, of those sixteen million books. Um, bought um, in the UK last year, the top 100, I should emphasise, um, 12.5% of those were by David Williams. <laughs> oh, my God. One and a half, wow. 1.91 million books just from one author. To give you a sense of what that scale looks like, J.K. Rowling 
in the same year and we know what a superstar jk rowling is if you say to anyone that oh name an author they're going to say they'll say charles dickens william shakespeare or jk rowling she sold six hundred thousand copies in the uk last year wow so i know i'm sort of like moving from but what i guess like what should i chris what should i think about that when an author um and particularly this author is selling that many is that i'm sorry if these sound like very crude questions but is that a good thing is that a bad sign what is it complete neutral or yeah you can you can think many things about it at once um first of all there's the fact that there is at least one publisher out there in the UK that has been broadly dependent on David Williams book sales um, for best part of the last decade. Um, and David Williams's book sales have enabled that publisher to publish an awful lot more books. Um, so that's a good thing. Um, you can think of the, um, you can think of, you can all, you, you could also think of it as being, you know, is this necessarily a good thing in that David Williams sucks an awful lot of the oxygen out of the room of children's fiction um, and a lot of books that book sales that are automatically going to David Williams because he's a recognisable figure. He was famous before he started writing books. Is he overshadowing, um, overshadowing um, other um, children's fiction talent? I don't know. So you can, you can think, you can think many, th- you can think many things about it. Um, yeah, because it's uh, yeah, it's it's. I don't know. Like when when I bring up uh, David Williams when I'm talking to children's authors, it's um, it sparks a lot of different reactions, but uh, n- n- people are never neutral on the on the su- subject of his books. Now, I and I, I I mean I am kind of I guess for the reasons that you say. I, I think you know it. Any sales of books um, are putting money into booksellers they're putting money into publishers i think it's a bit snobby to assume that people are buying his books um and sort of hating the every moment of it but going but we must because he's been on the telly i'm i can presume that people are reading them and enjoying them um but i know that if i was a were a children's author um just coming into the field um i would be worried whether there was any space for me i guess yeah i mean part that the, and again there's two ways of looking at that space are you looking at well yes if you think about children, uh, children's fiction as it is at the moment then you've got david williams and then you've got everyone else or you've got david williams and you've got die of a wimpy kid and you've got julia donaldson and then you've got everyone else which mm. is the, they're kind of the three sort of big figures within um within within children's fiction at the moment obviously there's jk rowling as well but it's like, would I be unhappy being put up against? It's like, oh, okay. Are you? Do you want? Are you unhappy about the the way that you the part the part that you play in the system as it stands? So should you just react against that, or should you wish to change the system? Um, and my way of thinking about it is, okay, David Williams dominates children's fiction. That makes it problematic for other children's authors coming into that environment because it leaves less space for them. But I think the solution to that is to take children's literature more seriously. So we're in a situation whereby 12.5% of all 
top 100 top 100 of all book sales of the top 100 in 2018 were a single children's author but around about 40 percent of total um book sales uh, total top 100 book sales for 2018 were children's fiction but we don't give in we don't give enough media attention to children's fiction we don't give enough uh, we don't give enough um, intellectual attention to uh, to children's fiction i think the the solution to this problem is to pay more attention to children's fiction, not to zone in on the fact that there are one or two um, figures who dominate that marketplace at the moment. Yeah, because I guess the question is like, do you want to be like, uh, do you want to be entering a marketplace where where nobody's doing particularly well, or if there is you know one person doing particularly well dominating it, I guess then it shows that there's an appetite and a market for for reading and it's like how can we how can we capitalize on it right yeah exactly um could you talk about some of the other uh that's really really interesting chris um i feel oh wowee can you talk about a couple of the other things that you discovered from looking at the uh list um so oh let me just go down the um let's talk about griplet shall we um what did you say Griplet. 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 It's literature that grips, grips you. It's basically psychological thrillers, um, which are crime psychological thrillers, which are cast in the mould of Girl on the Train. Ah, okay, yeah. Yeah. So the when I looked at adult fiction, um, there were... What that looked like is a marketplace where around about 60% of fiction sales were crime thrillers and if they weren't crime thrillers by an established name like your lee childs then they were a griplet book um so you've got that's about 60 percent of the, the the top 100 fiction marketplace and then the remainder is just every other sort of fiction but 30 percent of that was a single book um which is the um Ellen, the Eleanor Oliphant one, which I have not read, but which I am um, assured is a very lovely book. Um, so that comes under the I've heard that described as uplit. Uplit. We've uh, got uplit. We've got griplit. So uh, because it's you know it's uh, making people feel sort of better. It's ultimately hopeful, and that the so I've got a question, Chris. Um, Pete, I often hear it said that publishing is this industry where um. There'll be this kind of big breakout hit that nobody expected. And then there's this huge rush to find copies and to do the same thing and to jump on this trend. Um, but from what you... But so with Griplet, though, it does sound like people are then buying those books. So it doesn't sound like as a strategy. I'm just wondering whether you think that the, the, is publishing this hidebound industry of people chasing trends or are they actually doing something that is rewarded by readers? So I am a professional strategist. That's my that's my job outside um, outside writing novels. Um, what I the way I would describe the publishing industry is it is not strategic. It is deeply tactical. Um, so What's the difference. Like, okay, so strategies are deciding what you want to do and what you want to or what you want to accomplish before doing them. A tactic is a means by which you it is a means by which you enact a strategy so 
from my point of view, that okay, I want to reach women over the age of 40 with a message about a new frozen yogurt. So I, my strategy might be um, based around, you know, what that woman thinks about herself, um, where she hangs out, where she spends her time, what she, you know, what sort of what, what, what she what what she believe what she believes about her self image, and that's what I make a strategy from. But a tactic is something like an advertising campaign, or a direct or a direct marketing campaign, if if you're following me. So to see a book do really well accidentally, and then just to publish a load of copycats is not a strategy. So I'm just like, just to sort of restate what you're saying to check that I understand it. Strategy is uh, looking forward in time and it has a kind of paradigmatic element. It has a, a sort of philosoph guiding philosophy behind it. It's like, this is what, it has a kind of why. A tactic can theoretically exist without a clear why, except we think this will work. I, I, in, in an ideal world, a tactic, exists to turn a why into a how okay wow so what so what's and and so why do, why do you think that publishing tends to be more tactical than these kind of like broader strategies because oh this is a tough one um and i'm i'm not asking you to sort of <laughs> try to answer it without being without being overly shady because that would that would be uncharitable um because it's an industry that hasn't has not historically taken much store in really understanding what readers want so occasionally what will happen is it gets a very clear signal of what readers seem to want in the form of a massive bestseller and their automatic um response to the you know to the signal that this is what readers want is just just to give them more of the same and that works for time but the thing that we do know about the way that consumers respond to the market is that consumers eventually get tired of the same thing so we see it over we see it over and over and over and over and over again in publishing and something works really well and then publishers double down on it and they double down on it to the extent that they kill the genre remember remember adult coloring in yeah, do I? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that what I find it really interesting the way that Gripbit has kind of completely taken over um, for a few years, obviously because the cycle of finding a book, publishing a book, and then selling a book is is a long cycle. Um, if we think about the way that consumer goods operate, um, what we've done or what the publishing industry has done is it's identified that there is this need there are this this need or this want among readers for psychological thrillers that are quite dark that center women as grip as a lot of griplet does i think that's a really positive development um and they're just and their response is okay we need to book like girl on the train we need a book that has a mainly blue and black cover with an with an emboss with an emboss title and because they're the books that they've rushed to acquire, um, and maybe they possibly, for in a lot of cases, have paid a little bit too much money on them, then those are the books that get the marketing attention. And because those are the books that get the marketing attention, they're the book. They're they are the campaigns that they are the campaigns that translate into sales. So I will be really interested to see if 
uh, to see if Gripplet continues to sort of to capture this slice of the market, uh, the market in market in future years. It could be, you know, it's sort of a fundamental shift in the way that we uh, in the way that we consume fiction, or it could be an instance of another one of the an instant, or another one of those instances where the publish where the publishing industry gets on an idea and just pushes it down our throats until we can't possibly have any more of it. Thank you very much. Can I ask about what is your looking into your um, crystal ball, or possibly just looking on the? I guess this is more like a kind of heart monitor. I have a crystal ball. I have I have um, a limited amount of data and a basic facility with graphs. Okay, fantastic. In that case, I was wondering. Well, okay, so I'm not asking you to predict the future, but I would like your diagnosis, if not prognosis, on how literary fiction as a genre if it is a genre is standing up right now because i speak to a lot of litfic authors um and i'm i'm in, interested in it because for ages i've been hearing people sort of sounding uh warnings about it okay i will be next year at the be- very beginning of next year i will be 40 i have never known literary fiction not to be in a state of near death it's never been good to be a writer of literary fiction. It wasn't good to be a writer of literary fiction in the early 20th century. It wasn't good to be a writer of literary fiction in the mid 20th century. It wasn't good to be a writer of, a writer of literary fiction in the, in the late 20th century. It certainly isn't good to be a writer of literary fiction in the beginning of the 21st century because we're talking about a genre of literature which it's very difficult to aim at a market. But have things got worse? Because I, you know, I, I, th- I, I sort of imagine in my head at least, kind of gone are the kind of days of sort of the David Lodge and Ian McEwan and sort of like where there was like this big, there were these big kind of like heavy hitter hitting mostly um, uh, white and male um, who were seemed to be like kind of like there was a literary kind of like superstardom um and also like this feeling that in my head at least i mean you're i know that like ever since ever people have been going uh 1993 collapse of the netbook agreement and then before then oh penguin paperbacks um you know there's always been the sky's always been falling but i am still assured every time i bring this up by people oh no but it is this time it's real is that borne out by the data or not really um well it's difficult to draw any firm conclusions from this data because it contains so little literary fiction. Um, but, but, but that should tell us something in itself, right? Yeah. Um, the thing is that how often does literary fiction really cross over into that kind of that super high selling environment, um, environment of the top 100 is that, you know, is, and you know, does, I, I I find it immensely difficult uh, difficult to answer this question because, for a start, what is literary fiction? Um, it's fiction that cares more about the style and form than the content. Right. I mean that that that's one definition. I'm sure that if we threw us, a... oh no, it's utter bollocks. Yeah, no, it's complete bollocks. Is <laughs> four different uh, definitions. Absolutely. That in itself, so I have, you know, when we say literary literary fiction, I kind of have, I have trouble um, settling on 
uh, settling on that definite uh, settling on that definition for a start I, I it is it is more difficult for books which aren't aimed squarely at a market that don't have a guaranteed readership to secure things like decent advances for example which would put the which puts the livelihoods of um of full-time uh, of full-time authors at risk um i suppose that gets more you know that gets more problematic problematic but i kind of when we think about this supposed golden age of literary fiction i'm reminded of um the concept of the full salary pension what's that so you know how in so there was a moment in between around about 1950 and 1995 where you could leave work with a full salary pension where you paid into your company pension every year and then at the very end of that you would get a guaranteed income which was based on your final salary and then sometime around about the mid mid to late 90s people worked out that oh that ooh, maybe that's not economic well it's not economic but um companies decided they didn't they couldn't afford that anymore so they withdrew it um so when we look back look back at the golden age are we looking at a trend or are we looking at a blip mm. are there were there was there just a time in which market forces and consumer tastes aligned in such a way for a certain type of writer to thrive merely by writing books. And if that situation goes away, which it might, and it probably will, then what does that mean? Then what does that mean for a writer? The people that I see today who are forging successful full-time writing careers remind me much more of the jobbing writers of the early 20th century and before. So they're writers who have a keen eye, uh, have, have a keen ear for their audience. Um, they're writers who um, do what they can to build a fan base, which, um, and this is no criticism to to write to writers of uh, writers of literary fiction but it is much more difficult to build a fan base when you write when you write when you write literary fiction and they're also comfortable about crossing forms and platforms as well so if you think about what a successful writing career looks like in the 21st century is it somebody who writes books well yes maybe if they luck out but it's probably also going to be a writer who's comfortable with writing books writing scripts writing screenplays maybe they're in a successful podcast series tim <laughs> so we got and thinking about it because if you're the decoupling the idea of being a writer from the form in which you write is probably the only writing tip that i would ever give to another writer by all means write books if you really really want to write books but also, if you want to make a living as a professional writer, if that is what you want to do, then do not look to books in their in, books in its entirety to make a living for you. Now we're kind of getting onto this. It's kind of bringing me onto the sort of like what I would like to kind of close things with. And thank you so much, Chris. I really appreciate all this. And I'm sorry for my slightly stumbling questions at time i'm coming from a place of ignorance but as the 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 benefit for me is that i'm learning loads from um hearing all this and thank you for your considered and articulate and insightful answers um and also for saying when you don't know i think it takes a a wonderful amount of uh sort of modesty and self-awareness and there's too many people in this world who you can ask them anything and they'll go well 
here's what I think. And um, so it's been really useful to know when you go, well, we just don't know that. Um, I, Battlestar Suburbia is, although it's kind of, dis, it's in a dystopia, it's not grimdark because people in it have agency and they have the power to take actions which affect the world around them and change things, you know, a certain amount. I don't want to sort of give too much away but people are able to do things and they have responsibility and they have agency and when I you know when we talk about stats and when I hear you talk about these things it's kind of really fascinating but at the same time I feel as an author and also as a reader sometimes a bit like and this is also something about the age that we live in as well like oh my god I'm just this kind of like powerless speck in this great kind of like river um how can I have a, a positive impact? So uh, sort of my final question to you is is kind of trying to call on your own revolutionary spirit, really. But like, what can people listening and people like me as authors and also as consumers of books, what are some positive things we can do to sort of help steer this great uh, publishing industry to, to make it better, to make it, you know, what what do you think we can do? Okay, I think there's a few things that we can do. Um, first of which is to think about the ways in which you can um, support the writers that you, um, the writers that you love, through non-standard means. Um, so a lot of, and I find this particularly common um, among science fiction writers. A lot, a lot of them will do um, stuff like Patreon. Um, which is um, kind of like a sub- sort of a subscription patron service um, to top up their uh, to top up their income. So you pay three ninety nine a month or whatever, and you get you get free uh, you get short stories or access to exclusive stuff. Um, if you really love an author, and if they do that, then that's one way you can you can support an individual author at a more structural level. You can I think you can spend your money. Um, a little bit more interestingly and look at independent publishers um, because um, small independent publishers like mine um, are going to be the places with, where um, kind of new and interesting voices are going to emerge from. So uh, a few that spring to mind, um, well, one that springs to mind, that springs to mind immediately is Influx Press, um, or salt publishing, for example, um, salt publishing, for example, um, and these are the publishers which are most in need of your support, and also the kind of publishers that are going to be in less of a situation being able to market their books on um, things like underground advertising, and also less likely to indulge in what I could call uncharitably cookie cutter publishing. So that's that's what those are two ways that you can sort of sort of intervene um, actively um, with your money. Um, um, I think there are a couple of other ways in which we can sort of bring our um, sort of bring up bring our pressure to bear pressure to bear on the world of publishing. The first of which is to demand from the bigger publishers that they um, they publish more diverse voices. Um, so you know what sort of who are they sort of, who are they publishing. For? from um from BM, BAME um authors you know what's their what what's their male to female rate what's their male to female ratio how are they centering and raising up um voices from the LGBT experience um experience for example I think we can and should expect better 
and and when you say can i just can i just drill into that a second when you say we should um demand uh, more representation how specifically do you suggest we do that is it just what we buy or can we should we send them an email like you can send them an email um i and then yeah there are you can say you can send people an email you can send people a tweet you can ask uh, you can ask people polite questions i mean don't 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 send people don't send people rude emails you're um you're just going to ruin their day um but yeah i think i think we can as readers and sort of people who are actively involved in you know ask the industry that is there to give us um to give us entertainment and information for it that entertainment and information to be a fairer reflection of the world that we live in yeah that's those are really really fantastic i, I agree wholeheartedly uh chris and i think that's really really i'd say like uh yeah there's so there is so much stuff from um independent presses that is really really good and, and a lot of stuff that you will have you will just not have realized um came from independent presses um uh just because you know by virtue of it becoming stuff that everyone's talking about um but they do they do have sort of they are at liberty to take to to take risks and they tend to be championing stuff out of a real sense of love and this story needs to be brought to the world well they have to take risks because if somebody like influx press did a girl on the train clone it would be completely crushed by the fact that it doesn't have um, the re- d- doesn't have the resources to market it in the same way as they would Paula Hawkins' next book. So we have to do something different. Yeah, that's, so all of that is really, really, really um, useful and helpful stuff. I think it just really helps, Chris, because, like, you know, you just sometimes... It's, I, you know, I, and it's like me. I want, I want to do things. I want to be a positive influence, but I just, you know, you just go, but... Uh, what do, what do I do? And those are all really, really useful, practical steps. And although one person doing it doesn't necessarily make a, a difference, as soon as lots of people start deciding to do that together, um, then the change is undeniable. Yeah. Well, thank you very, very much, Chris. If people want to um, find you uh, online, not in a sinister way, but just in a friendly, keeping up to date with what you're doing, um, what's the best place for them to do that? Definitely Twitter. I tweet at at C McCrudden, which is C M C R U D E N. Okay, I'll put a link to that um, in the show notes and on my website. So people, if you go and um, click on the show notes after you finish listening to this, um, you can go and follow Chris. I really recommend it. He's um, really, really uh, well. You know, you've just listened to him, so I don't need to. I don't need to sell him to you now. You've just listened to him, and he's a wonderful, wonderful, uh, interesting, thoughtful, and compassionate chap. Thanks so much, Chris. Um, I really, really enjoyed chatting to you. Okay. But love talking to you too, Tim. Okay, thank you. And everyone listening, I hope you have a wonderful week of writing.